We are looking at Proverbs 6 today as we are continuing our sermon series based on the book of Proverbs. We have entitled this sermon series, Navigate. And one of the things we have seen from the beginning of the book is that increasing in wisdom does involve gaining knowledge. But we also see that Proverbs is not only concerned with gaining knowledge, but with character formation. True wisdom is rooted in fear of the Lord, which leads to turning away from evil and pursuing righteousness. Through the Spirit-empowered ministry of the Word, the Lord uses the book of Proverbs to shape us and form us into the people He desires us to be. When Solomon wrote significant portions of Proverbs, he addressed my son. He gives his words of wisdom as though he is speaking to his son. But I think we would be mistaken in thinking that he only had one son in mind, or even all of his sons in mind. I think it is clear that when he was writing, though he was using the example of writing to my son, he had a larger audience in mind. The larger audience being the entire covenant community, the people of God. The Lord established a covenant with his people, the Israelites, at Mount Sinai, which we read about in the book of Exodus. We also read about the law that the Lord gave to his people so that they would know his will and how to live in right relationship with him, being faithful to the covenant that he established with them. The first five books of the Bible are often referred to as the Pentateuch. And sometimes they are referred to in shorthand manner as the law. And it's not that all uh, of the first five books are law, but the law plays such a central and key role in the first five books of the Bible, in the covenant that the Lord established with his people, that the first five books are summarized as the law. Proverbs is a different genre of literature than the law, but we can clearly see that Proverbs is rooted and grounded in the law that the Lord gave to his people through Moses. Whereas the law is direct and blunt with commands such as, do not commit adultery, Proverbs warns the son colorfully and poetically about the specific ways he may be enticed to commit adultery. One of the things the law does is forbid sin. One of the things Proverbs does is prepare one for the way he may be tempted to sin. The fifth book of the Pentateuch is Deuteronomy. And the word Deuteronomy literally means second law. It doesn't mean second law in the sense that God was giving his people a different law, but second law in the sense that it was a second presentation of the law to God's people. In Deuteronomy, we see Moses preparing the Israelites to enter into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy consists of a series of sermons whereby 
Moses repeats the law and exhorts God's people to obey the law. Another way we see how Proverbs is shaped by the law is through the warnings against self-inflicted ruin. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 through 27, Moses said this, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. If they sinned against the Lord, if they broke the covenant, if they did what was evil and perpetuated injustice, then they would incur God's judgment. Moses was warning them, If you're unfaithful, if if you sin against the Lord, it will be disastrous for you. There will be consequences. In our passage today, Proverbs 6, the community is warned against self-inflicted ruin. Solomon gave a series of warnings, and there is a progression in the first three examples that go from bad to worse. First, he warns against making an unwise decision. Then he warns against laziness. And the third warning involves a denunciation of the wicked man. The final part of the chapter is an exhortation to the son to keep his father's and mother's commandments and teaching, followed by a reiteration of the warning against committing adultery. With that in mind, I'm going to read Proverbs chapter 6, and I encourage you to follow along. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly." 
In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his grace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. In verses 1 through 5, Solomon warned against making an unwise decision. The focus of his instruction addressed how his son should respond if he makes this unwise decision. But the effect of the instruction is to help his son avoid making such a decision in the first place. He described a scenario where the son put himself in financial jeopardy by putting up security for a neighbor or a stranger. Putting up security for someone is promising to pay their debt if they default. He was warning him against putting himself in a financial position that was out of his control. A similar example of this in our day is co-signing for a loan. Most people are going to tell you, don't co-sign for a loan. It's usually not good for you or the person whom you're trying to help. Even the Federal Trade Commission requires lenders to give you a document called the Notice to Co-Signer before you can become a co-signer on a loan. The language required in the notice reminds me of Proverbs, not in style, but in the way that it warns. Listen to what it says. You are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower doesn't pay the debt, you will have to. Be sure you can afford to pay if you have to and that you want to accept this responsibility. You may have to pay up to the full amount of the debt if the borrower does not pay. You may also have to pay late fees or collection costs, which increase this amount. The creditor can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect from the borrower. 
the creditor can use the same collection methods against you that can be used against the borrower, such as suing you, garnishing your wages, etc. If this debt is ever in default, that fact may become part of your credit record. <laughs> the notice to cosigner doesn't tell a person, don't cosign, but it does clearly lay out the responsibility and potential consequences of becoming a cosigner. Here are the consequences. You may have to pay this debt. You may also have to pay fees. You could get sued. Your, warn your garnishes could, uh, they could garnish your wages. This could affect your credit history. I love that the line, think carefully. How often does a legal document tell you, think, think about it. Think before you make this decision. The words of warning here, again, remind me of Proverbs. And I think this notice is meant to have a similar effect as the first few verses of Proverbs 6. The point of these verses is not that it is a sin or morally wrong to put up security for someone, but it is usually unwise. So Solomon was saying, if you had a lapse in judgment, if you hastily agreed to something you should not have agreed to, if you put yourself in financial jeopardy, then do everything you can to resolve the situation and eliminate the risk. Don't shrug your shoulders. Don't be passive. Don't just sit back and hope for the best. Think of yourself like a gazelle being hunted. The gazelle being hunted doesn't have time to go, well, you know, I think maybe I'll just take a nap. You know, I know the hunter's coming, but I really don't want to bother myself with trying to be free. No, the gazelle is singular in focus. I need to get away from this problem. The gazelle understands how to save herself from ruin. The second warning found in verses 6 through 11 is to the sluggard. Solomon liked to use observations from nature to make certain points. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 32 and 33, we read, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. But it was the example of the ant that he employed to address the lazy man. Go to the ant, you sluggard. That is humbling. If you want to be wise and learn a lesson from an ant. Without a chief, officer, or ruler, the ant goes to work and takes care of what needs to be done. In other words, the ant takes initiative. She doesn't need to be told what to do. She knows the right course of action and takes the necessary steps. The ant wisely stores up during times of plenty to be prepared during times of scarcity. So the ant is a model of taking initiative, working hard, saving up, and being prepared. The sluggard, on the other hand, is characterized by inaction and fails to take initiative. Instead, he lies around and can't be bothered with hard work. Solomon says, how long will you lie there? When will you arise from your sleep? The lazy man, the man who lacks initiative and chooses sleep over getting up, and getting to work will eventually pay 
the price. He will experience self-inflicted ruin. Poverty will come suddenly and forcefully like a robber or armed man. In Proverbs, we see that there are instances where a person is poor because they have been wronged. In Proverbs 13, 23, we read, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much fruit, but it is swept away through injustice. A good reminder that we do not make assumptions about a person's situation. We don't jump to conclusions. We recognize that different people experience poverty for different reasons. But we also see that there are instances where a person is poor because of their own laziness. In Proverbs 6, poverty comes to the lazy man because he failed to take initiative, work hard, and save up when he had the opportunity to do so. Jesus picked up this theme of the sin of laziness and its consequences in his parable of the master who entrusted three servants with his money. We read this parable in Matthew chapter 25. A master going away on a journey entrusted three servants with his money. He gave one five talents, one two talents, and one one. We read that the first two servants went to work, made good use of their master's money, and doubled it. The one who had five talents doubled the money, had ten. The one who had two doubled the money, had four. But the one who had one didn't do anything besides taking the money and burying it in the ground. When the master returned and heard a report from the servants, he said the same thing to the first two. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your servant. Each was faithful with what was given to him. He didn't commend the one with more, more than the, uh, with five, more so than the one with two. They were both faithful. They both used what they had been given in a way that honored him by diligently putting it to work. But to the third servant, he said, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus warned against laziness. The parable was meant to encourage us as followers of Jesus to be faithful and diligent with everything the Lord has given us, to use what the Lord has given us in a way that is honoring and pleasing to him. Regarding laziness, Proverbs 6 focuses on the consequence of poverty. If you are lazy, poverty will come upon you. You will experience the self-inflicted ruin of poverty. In his teaching, Jesus pointed to something worse, focusing on the consequence of judgment. And so we see in God's word 
there are self-inflicted consequences, natural consequences, we might say. You do this bad thing, here's the natural consequence. We also see an added layer of divine judgment. Ruin comes to the person who sins against the Lord, who is unrepentant. They bring ruin upon themselves in the sense that they incur divine judgment. Jesus warned of this judgment. In the third warning, Solomon comments on what will become of the wicked man. In verses 1 through 5, he gave the example of a man who made a poor choice in a moment of lapsed judgment, not immoral but unwise. Then in verses 6 through 11, he gave an example that is more egregious, namely the example of the lazy man. But in verses 12 through 19, the example is even worse as he warns against the man who actively causes harm and sows division. He refers to him as a worthless person who is a wicked man. His speech is corrupt. His ways are manipulative and deceptive. His heart is not pure, and he sows division. Clearly, he does not fear the Lord, and he does not see the judgment that is coming. To state the point more emphatically, Solomon described the characteristics of the wicked man in terms of things the Lord hates and things that are an abomination to him. Brothers and sisters, this should get our attention. When God tells us in his word what he hates, we should listen carefully and feel the weight of his words. If you fear the Lord, you will examine yourself carefully in light of what God hates. Haughty eyes refer to pride and self-exaltation over another person. One commentator noted that pride is first in this list of abominations because no vice stands in sharper opposition to wisdom and fear of God than pride. And no virtue stands closer to them than humility and modesty. The Lord hates pride. A lying tongue is an abomination to the Lord and his holy character, for he always tells the truth, and in him there is no deceit. The Lord hates a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that makes wicked plans, feet that are quick to rush to evil, and a false witness who lies. All these things are evil. All these things are an offense against God's holy character and his revealed will. All of these things are an offense to the Lord. But we need to see the purpose of the use of the numbers 6 and 7. Remember, he said there are six things the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. Dwayne Garrett writes, this numeric literary device seeks to draw particular attention to the final item as the focus of the Lord's hatred. It is easy to agree that God hates the first six items. It is also easy to overlook the seventh, and thus the author pulls the reader up short. The author 
pulls us up short on the final item in which which is one who dis- sows discord among brothers. And of course, this corresponds to what he wrote in verse 14, where he described the wicked man as one who is continually sowing discord. The one who sows discord is working against the Lord's purposes. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The Lord loves and celebrates unity between brothers and sisters in Christ. But he hates when someone causes division among brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's contrast the seven things God hates with the first seven Beatitudes that Jesus taught at the beginning of Matthew 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, is the opposite of the one with haughty eyes. The seventh one, blessed are the peacemakers, is the opposite of the one who sows discord among brothers. As Proverbs 6 shows us what God hates, Jesus shows us what God loves. God hates discord and loves unity. We see this applied to the church in the New Testament writings. In John 17, we read the prayer Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified. And one of the things he prayed for was unity. Think about that. As he prepared to face the cross, as he prepared to endure the wrath of God for our sins, the unity of the church was on his mind. In verses 20 through 21, he prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He prayed for all those who would believe. He prayed for the church. The church would be one, that we would experience unity in Christ Jesus. And this unity that we have as his people, the church, is a testament that God has has in fact sent Christ into the world to save sinners. It is a testament to the saving power of Jesus Christ. It is a testament to the truthfulness of the gospel. In Ephesians 4, 1-3, Paul exhorted the church in Ephesus with these words, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God hates it when someone causes discord, but he says, blessed are the peacemakers and those who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And he provides the path for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's the path that involves humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. This is what the Lord loves. This is what he calls us to. Again, when we rightly fear the Lord, we feel the weight of the words regarding what he hates. We do well to examine our hearts, words, actions, and posts to not only avoid what he hates, but actively pursue what he loves and commands. We pursue being peacemakers through humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and, and eagerly seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity brings glory to Christ, and it serves our witness in this community and beyond. As followers of Jesus, we hate what God hates, and we love what God loves. In the final part of the chapter, Solomon exhorts and warns. In verses 20 through 23, he exhorted the son to keep his father's commandments and not forsake his mother's teaching. He impressed on him, guard the teaching and the teaching will guard you. In impressing on him the need to guard the teaching, he drew from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In the book of Deuteronomy, as I said earlier, Moses was preparing the Israelites to enter the promised land by preaching a series of sermons to the people. And he was exhorting them to be faithful to the covenant that the Lord had established with them. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, he said, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. In a land flowing with milk and honey, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He was exhorting them, meditate on God's law. Keep it always before you. Preserve the teaching and the teaching will preserve you. Teach it diligently to your children. 
And do you see the parallels with Solomon, with what Solomon said regarding his commandments here in chapter 6, verses 21 through 23, where he said, Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Solomon's thinking and teaching were shaped by the covenant and the need for God's people to be faithful to the covenant. He was seeking to fulfill the commands of Deuteronomy 6 by passing on the commandments to his son and exhorting him to obey them. He wanted his son to know the commandments through and through and seek to apply them to his heart and life continually. Think on these things. Meditate on these commands. Remember the teaching from the Lord. Guard the teaching, and the teaching will guard you. The Lord's commandments are not burdensome. They are good, and they are good for us. They keep us from sin and destruction and lead us in the glorious path of righteousness. In addressing his son in Proverbs 6, Solomon specifically described how the Lord's commandments will preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Meditating on the Ten Commandments would fortify his son against the temptation when and if it arose. The Seventh Commandment says you shall not commit adultery. The Tenth Commandment says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. To help his son, Solomon spoke more specifically to the way he might be caught off guard by the temptation. He said, don't desire her beauty in your heart, and don't be captured or enthralled by her external beauty. The Lord's commands sound good in principle. When you hear the commands, you say, yes, this is good and right. But when sin appears in such an appealing way, it can weaken someone's resolve and conviction regarding the Lord's commands. So Solomon was preparing him. He was preparing him for the way he might be tempted to doubt or disobey God's commands when his conviction might be weakened. He then reminded him again about the consequences. He said, if you play with fire, you are going to get burned. If you commit adultery, you won't go unpunished. He then made a contrast between one who commits adultery and one who steals out of necessity. He said, listen, if someone steals out of necessity, people are going to have compassion for that person. People might be sympathetic to the one who is stealing out of necessity. But even the person who steals out of necessity is going to have to pay the price. Even the person who steals out of necessity is still going to suffer the consequences. So if someone for whom people have compassion is going to pay the consequence, how much more will you pay the consequence when no one has compassion for you when you commit adultery? He was impressing this upon him. He was saying, you will be disgraced. You will be dishonored. 
and you will be subject to revenge. Verse 32 tells it straight. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Adultery leads to self-inflicted ruin. We read a warning against adultery last week in chapter 5. We read another warning today in chapter 6. And spoiler alert, we are going to hear another warning against adultery next week when AJ preaches from chapter 7. That might seem like a little much. Man, there seems to be this focus on this particular sin. There are many ways we sin. There are many ways we fall short. Why such a heavy emphasis on this particular sin, the sin of adultery? Well, brothers and sisters, when the Lord repeats a theme or command in his word, we do well to repeat that theme or command. The Lord repeats a warning in his word. We do well to repeat that warning. We ought to see that the Lord repeats this warning, this command, because of the devastating consequences of this sin. Adultery comes with devastating consequences. And therefore, the Lord repeats this warning, this command. And therefore, in our preaching, we will do so as well. If the Lord uses the repetition to keep someone from adultery, then brothers and sisters, it is more than well worth it. We see a warning in Proverbs 6 against self-inflicted ruin or destroying yourself. Because Solomon was shaped by the law, we know that this warning involved more than merely a self-inflicted consequence, but also included divine judgment. On the one hand, there are natural consequences. If you make a bad investment, you're going to suffer the natural consequence of losing money. On the other hand, when speaking of the wicked man in verse 15, Solomon said, Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing, which sounds less like a natural consequence and more like divine judgment for wickedness. I think the impression Proverbs 6 is meant to have on us is this. Be careful not to make unwise decisions, but be especially careful to see the danger of sin. We do not want to be people who make light of sin. We do not want to be people who fail to see the ruinous consequences of sin. Rather, we ought to heed the words of the Lord, feel the weight of his words, knowing what he hates, that we might turn from these things. Jesus sought to impress something similar on us with his teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus said, do not take sin lightly. Take sin seriously. Recognize the danger. Recognize the destruction. Recognize the reality of divine judgment. As those who have been saved by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus, you're called to rightly fear the Lord, to turn from evil, to walk in the way of wisdom, the path of righteousness. And as we do so, we are called to hate sin, dealing with it seriously. If you are not a Christian, then you have the same problem that we all have, a sin problem. We all have this problem in common. God is the one who made us. He is our creator. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Creation testifies to this truth. As much as man seeks to deny this truth, God has made it plain to us. God has revealed himself in such a way that no one is without excuse. Friend, you are not without you are without excuse. You cannot make any excuses. God has revealed himself as our creator, as the one who made us in his image, that we might know him, love him, obey him, and glorify him. Yet every single one of us has rebelled against God. Every single one of us has sinned against him. Every single one of us has disobeyed his good commands. Therefore, every single one of us is deserving of divine judgment. If God were to only give us what we deserve, we would get death and hell. But God, in his mercy, in his love, provided a way to save sinners like you and me. And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so by providing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He lived a life without sin so that he could offer himself as the perfect, spotless sacrifice in our place taking the punishment we deserve on the cross where he absorbed God's wrath for the sins of his people. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the grave and conquered death. He appeared to many people and then ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's now seated and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. There will be a day of final judgment. And we as sinners, have only one hope on that day, and that hope is Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, 23, we read, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you're not a Christian, we hope that you will see the problem of sin, feel the weight of this problem problem 
and understand that your only hope as a sinner is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. We hope that you will heed the warnings in Scripture while there is time. Our hope, our desire, our prayer for you is that you will believe in Christ and be saved. I think it is fitting to close with the words of John Newton. At the end of his life, he said, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you for your word. Your word is good. Your commands are good, and they are good for us. Yet we in our sin have all turned away from your good commands. We've all gone our own way. Lord, we've all experienced consequences for our sin. We've all felt the pain of sin. We thank you, Lord, that though we have all sinned against you, though we have all felt the pain of sin, you have provided Jesus Christ as the Savior to take the ultimate punishment for our sin so that we who believe in Christ do not have to fear final judgment. We pray that as those who have been saved, that we will rightly fear you, taking sin seriously, turning away from sin, and walking in the path of righteousness. Lord, we pray for anyone here today who's not yet a Christian, and we pray that today will be the day of salvation. We pray that you would grant repentance and faith to anyone who is not a Christian, that today they may believe and be saved. We thank you for this, Lord, and we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.